Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining for yet another session of Hilcha's Beis HaBechira as we continue to learn about God's chosen home. Now, God's chosen home has a chosen location. And we've talked quite a bit about that. We've discussed the history, the background, even some of the raison d'etre for Yerushalayim being the ground zero of holiness for the Jewish people. Yes, perhaps the city of Jerusalem is respected and perhaps even revered by people of other faith systems, people who hail from various backgrounds. But it must be said, and perhaps it cannot be reiterated strongly enough for no one else, is Jerusalem the singular source of all of our holiness and our connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, everything for us comes through Yerushalayim. Even in today's day and age when our Beis HaMikdash tragically is not physically present, nonetheless, we still direct our material posture in the direction of Yerushalayim when we do a range of things which could perhaps best be termed pursuing holiness. And we learned that there are Various limitations, rules, regulations, things that were done to set Yerushalayim aside. All of this, ultimately, lends itself to facilitating the attitude of awe, the honor, and the dignity of Yerushalayim. Most of the previous rules and regulations that we've touched upon over the last couple of episodes in this 14th halacha, of the seventh chapter of Hilchus Beis Abchira, have been reflections of either the beauty of Yerushalayim, that it be an appealing place, be a place in which the material appearance reflects the spiritual purity and the holy aura that's supposed to be felt and observed when one comes to the Beis Hamikdash. Conversely, we talked about ritual purity. Many things that were done to ease the observance and to ascertain that people could remain in a state of tahara, ritual purity, because so many of the temple-centric mitzvot demanded this kind of tahara, this kind of purity. Today we are going to learn about no less than four specific regulations. Things that set the city of Yerushalayim apart from all other cities in the Holy Land of Eretz Yisrael. One of these rules is a law unique to walled cities, and we've talked about that. And the other three are rules that apply to every municipality. And yet, all four of these do not apply to the holy city of Yerushalayim, not because it would in some way soil the appearance, not because it would infringe on ritual purity or impurity, but because of the singular idea that Yerushalayim represents. It brings us all together. The Beis Migdash doesn't belong to a tribe, and neither does its host city. Jerusalem was not the tribe of Judea's personal property. It wasn't the tribe of Benjamin's personal property, although their territory immediately encircled the area, Yerushalayim, by design, 
was the heritage of the nation of Israel. King David himself was the one who orchestrated things. He was the architect of this city of oneness, Yerushalayim, that is considered to be Yachtov, representing unification and oneness. It unifies or brings together heaven and earth, and it brings Am Yisrael together to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to God, and it brings all of us, all of us, regardless of what color, creed, or background we have, regardless of our particular tribal affiliation or, if you will, lineage or pedigree. Every Jew was home in Yerushalayim. Okay, let's roll up our sleeves and get technical. The final lines of Halacha Yudala, the 14th Halacha, the Rambam says, Ve'ein habayit nechlat bo. This is a deal uh, or a law that governs the notion of real estate business, real estate transaction. So you might know that the land of Israel is owned by people, like any land is owned by people. There's a, there was a monarchy in place that governed the land. There were municipal authorities who took care of the cities. There was a judicial authority who oversaw law and order in each of Israel's 12 provinces. And ultimately, the real owner of the land of Eretz Yisrael is HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. And God reminds us of his ownership on a regular basis. Where in the time of the first base Hamikdash, every seven years, all of the fields lied fallow, or they were supposed to. Because it's my land, says Hashem. My land needs to keep Shabbat. This was also applicable in the second base Hamikdash, and it is observed until this very day. In fact, the coming year is one of Shemitah, when all the farmers are supposed to put their implements down and go and study Torah so we don't become too earthy a people. Our gross national product once was agriculture, not high-tech. And six years a cycle, we toiled at tilling the land. And then on the seventh, we became a spiritually oriented people. And our manna-like sustenance was a little more apparent. Truth be told, we believe that parnasa, that sustenance, is always manna-like. And that's why Hashem sustained us for the first four decades of our peoplehood in that fashion. And whilst we go through the motions of making a living and doing what has to be done, it's ultimately the bracha, the blessing of Hashem Yisbarach. And the year of Shemitah, God found other ways to send those blessings to us, bumper crops that were literally off the charts that could tide us over for a year, two, or even three at times. And then, in the time of the first base of Migdash, after seven cycles, after the seventh Shemitah, there was a year called the Jubilee. And when the Yovel came, all fields, all properties, reverted back to its original owner. Now, broadly speaking, this applies to the entirety of the land of Israel. That's right, the Jewish homeland that really belongs to Hashem. 
and land would revert back to its original owner. All farms, all estates, all orchards, all plantations went back to their original owners, the Jewish people who came from Mitzrayim, from Egypt in tribal formation. And then there's the walled city. And then there's regular cities. And the question of selling not parcels of land, but rather homes. Or perhaps even collections of homes. They had uh, attached homes, courtyards. So there's a very interesting halacha about the walled city. The walled city is not quite, quite like the other cities. The walled city's halacha is that if a house is sold with a residential home that is a property sold within a walled city, that it may be redeemed for a full year afterwards. But once a calendar year has gone by, if nobody has redeemed that city, meaning no member of the family or the person who sold the city in house in desperation didn't manage to put the money together, well, in that case, the buy it would be nechlat, which means that the sale would be final and binding. That is to say, if you bought a home in a walled city, you knew you were taking a chance because if the person whose home you bought came back, he would pay you the exact amount of money you paid and he could really, literally evict you. He said, I'm here to take my home back. Say, hey, you sold it to me. Well, in bias Arechayimah, it wasn't really sold. For the first year, that is. Once a full year goes by, nechlat. Nechlat means the sale is final. It becomes permanent property of the buyer. Ramam tells us that in these streets, in these neighborhoods, in the special municipality of Yerushalayim, within the walled city of Yerushalayim, Ein Habayas Nechlatba. Now, it's really important for me to point out to you that when we speak about the idea of these walled cities, or this walled city of Yerushalayim, we're not speaking about the present Ottoman walls that encircle the proverbial old city of Jerusalem. Some of those walls are built on accurate or original foundations, many are not. That is not to be confused with the city of Yerushalayim. In fact, the most important part of the city of Yerushalayim is nowhere near those walls. That's what they like to call the Silwan. That's the real Ir David. A good portion of the Beis HaMikdash itself is just barely within those walls. Really and truly, it was down beneath in the valley where the city of Yerushalayim once prospered. The Jewish quarter, for example, which is really a Jewish eighth of today's wall, Jerusalem, just a tiny eighth of the city, that was the new city. That was the fancy suburbs that were only built up in the time, the waning years of the second Beis HaMikdash, the last century of the second Beis HaMikdash show, but they were included in the walls, and there was homes there even in the times of the first Beis HaMikdash. It just became very prominent later on. The point that I want to make is this. Uh, initially, the topography was such that that area was called the Tyropian Valley, and initially, across the mountain of the Tyropian Valley, there wasn't actually residences, and it wasn't originally the city of Yerushalayim. So all the things we're talking about now would be rules that would apply to the walled city of Yerushalayim, the city that David HaMelech had planned, the city that he had built, the city that Chizkiyahu HaMelech had expanded 
That's the city we, spoke, we speak of. So David HaMelech speaks of that city and he says, in this city, nobody really owns anything in a tribal sectarian way. And as such, if you're in a house, great. But even if you sell that house, it's never a full and complete sale. And this way, it's taken out of, if you will, the notion that Yerushalayim actually belongs to somebody specific. Because in fact it doesn't. So you have a house, and one of the things that would come along with ownership is your ability to sell it. And yet, that's not the case. No sale is ever final. Things can always be redeemed. And that tells us that whilst you own the home, you don't have total or absolute ownership over it. Jerusalem essentially was not considered anybody's private property. And it always remained, in some way, the property of the entire Jewish nation. And so this house of bias Nechlat does not apply. I'm leaving out details, I know, but I want to focus on the laws of Beis Abchida, not the story of the bias Nechlat. Incidentally, this is all discussed in the Gemara in Mesechet Bavakama on page 82b, and it's all derived from verses. If you want to know about why it is that the city can't be, so to speak, fully sold, the verse which is found in Leviticus chapter 25 states, V'kom habayis v'chulu the house rises up to its buyer, its new owner, for perpetuity. And because Yerushalayim was never divided amongst the tribes, you can't have any kind of ownership by perpetuity. I guess a lease was the best you could have. And ultimately, the land of Yerushalayim was owned by the nation. The land of the municipality of Yerushalayim was owned by the nation, not the individual, not even the tribe. Now, back in temple times, there was a, a reality, which we call in the Torah Tzorat. Tzorat is a paranormal condition, as many of the Rishonim describe in great detail, including Maimonides himself in his codes. There are copious verses in the Torah that describe this in great detail. People read it today as as if it's ancient history, because we haven't seen this condition in a very long time. But it was once an important part of Jewish ritual life. It governs people who can have skin discolorations of varying shades, generally associated with whiteness or artificial or odd baldness, but not limited to that alone. There's also various pinks and reds that could be problematic when you have uh, burnt skin and if it's a place where usually hair covers. There's a question of whether discoloration plays, plays a role altogether. Maimonides is of the opinion that the hair falling out would be sufficient at any rate. White, the white skin discoloration is typically what people think of when they hear of this paranormal condition called saras. It is not to be confused with any kind of contagion. It was not an illness or infection. It was the symptom of a spiritual malaise, a spiritual dysfunction. Now, tsaras can also affect your leather couches, your chesterfields. It can affect your blankets, your pillows, things made of leather. It can also affect your home. It can affect your clothing made of wool or linen. 
and it can affect your home if your home is made of stone. They are the colors that identify something as leprous, and that is entirely a mistranslation. I'm using that for convenience only. It would be green or red. Now, this is a paranormal thing, and it's a miracle of sorts that was amongst us. It was God's way of communicating his dissatisfaction with our behavior and kind of guiding us, nudging us very gently back onto the right path. If you behave badly, first you'd see discoloration in your home and you'd suffer some kind of displacement from your own residence. If that didn't work, well, then uh, your clothing, the things you sat on, laid on, or even wore, began to experience this odd kind of discoloration. It's like, hello, did you get the hint? Yeah, my name is God, I'm talking to you. I really would like you to change your behavior. There's a slew of unhealthy behaviors generally associated with the concept of tzaras, everything from stinginess to, um, to slander, but most often, Lashon Hara gossip is what we typically associate with the idea of this tzaras. If you still didn't get the hint, then it would actually attack your person. So the first warning that would come was on the stone of the house. We talked about Jerusalem. Stone, many of the homes were built of stone. And yet, a house in the city of Yerushalayim can never be designated as leprous per se. And that has something to do with Ownership. <laughs> Why? Well, if it's your house, then the house suffers on account of your ownership. But if your ownership is incomplete, well, it's not really your house. It's kind of everybody's house. Anybody who would come to visit Yerushalayim could stay in your home. We talked about this several episodes ago where we learned that it's prohibited, proscribed to have an Airbnb. You can't rent your house. You're expected to host visitors all the time. People living in Yerushalayim had open homes, not for money, for hospitality. And also remembering that you had a good fortune, a mazel to live in Yerushalayim, but you didn't really own the house. When it comes to leprous homes, the Torah's expression, and this is found in Leviticus 14, chapter 34, it says, I will place a lesion of tzaras, a discoloration, in the home of your ancestral ownership. Yerushalayim isn't really yours. We could talk more about this, but that's the gist of the matter. So how would God get hints through to the people in Yerushalayim? <laughs> I guess the buffer zone of the home didn't come into effect and it went straight to your Chesterfield or your tunic, or it might have been right onto your skin. Furthermore, the Ene Nasa Ir Hanidachas. So this is a story of a municipal mutiny against God, that is. Now, the truth is, we have a Gemara that says that the details of Ir Hanidachas, that literally can translate as an apostate city, were something that never actually happened. Lehoya Veloyiya is one school of thought in our Torah. And basically, as is described in the 13th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, verses 13 through 19, the Torah talks about the possibility of a city in which the majority of its inhabitants become spiritually debauched and embrace idol worship. And the Torah says it can apply to one of your cities. Ba'achat orecho is the expression that's used. Orecho, one of your cities. But the term can't properly describe Yerushalayim because it can never really be seen as 
ours, ours as in the inhabitants. If the inhabitants behave badly, they don't have the right to be the cause of the city being destroyed, which is what happens to an Irhanidachas, an apostate city. It gets razed to the ground, and its inhabitants are judged with some very serious consequences. But you can't raise Yerushalayim. Oh, why not? The people embraced idolatry. And don't think there were times in which most of the city was worshipping idols. They didn't meet the criteria of Irhanidachas, perhaps, but there was a lot of idolatry going on. In fact, during one of the most wicked kings of Yehuda, a man named Menashe, who, you'll forgive me, tattooed the name and image of his idol onto his penis. I'm not exaggerating. That's what kind of sick puppy this fellow was. He placed idols in the base Hamigdash. In the base Hamigdash. He murdered prophets and rabbis and teachers of Torah. He forcibly engaged the population, the citizenry, trying to coerce them to worship idols. It was an awful, terrible time. Menashe was a horrible individual. And yet, even if a majority of Jerusalem were to have embraced idolatry, and even if they were to have met the criterion of an apostate city, we wouldn't be able to, so to speak, declare war and raise that city because it's not their city. You can spoil your own municipality. You can bring ruination upon your own geography. This doesn't belong to you. There's a certain beauty in things not really belonging to us because, because think about it. It reminds us that everything really belongs to Hashem. If one contemplates these regulations, the essence of these laws is that people living in Yerushalayim didn't get carried away with their possessions where they shouldn't have because they were always being reminded that everything belongs to Hashem Yisbaruch. And Yerushalayim, as a holy city, was a city where people themselves, just by virtue of the real estate rules, were more aware of the biblical idea, La Hashem Ha'oretz, Umaloya, Hashem. God is the real master. In a small way, we should all borrow a page from the Jerusalem playbook and we should all live with a sense of humility before Hashem, a sense of subservience and my house, my possession. You know, the Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe, as is brought out on Yom Yom, used to say, the shtikel breit v'sachob, the piece of bread I have, it's diner. It's yours, like it's mine. And they would first say yours, not say it's mine and yours too. These were very pious people, very sensitive people, very sharing and caring people. And they didn't focus on what they owned. These are people who live with open homes. These are people for whom hospitality was a way of life. Really a reflection of true Torah values that we should all aspire to. Yerushalayim means Yerushalayim, perfect awe or reverence for Hashem. And whilst these laws aren't legislated elsewhere, in Yerushalayim they could even be written into statute. And for us, it's something to aspire to. Lastly, 
The Rambam concludes Halacha Yedal by telling us, One does not bring an Egla Arufa. An Egla Arufa is a, a calf, an Egla. And the word Aruf is an act of, well, means to break its neck as an act of atonement. Uh, the Torah describes in the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy the laws that apply to an unsolved murder. Heaven forfend, a corpse is discovered in open area, in field or meadow, between two cities or near other municipalities. The city that's closest has to take a calf, break its neck, literally behead the calf, and the elders wash their hands into the blood of the calf that's just been machetied. And they say, Our hands did not shed this blood. We don't know what happened. We didn't let this person go unescorted, unaccompanied, and we don't know what happened. And there's a lot to say about the Eglarufa. It sounds uh, kind of off the walls to people hearing it for the first time. Let me just share with you what the Sefer HaChinuch says. He says that if you go into the laws of Egla Rufa, Maimonides, by the way, in Marinavuchim talks about this also. He says, you see, there's this spectacle, a whole business of measuring who, which city is closest to the corpse. And then the city that's closest to the corpse has to own the murder, so to speak. How do you own the murder? We don't know who the murderer is. Ah, that's precisely the problem. We have an unsolved homicide. So instead of this poor victim being buried and just fading into the night. Instead, what happens is the leadership of the city, the Torah leadership of the city, has to say, we didn't commit this. We didn't commit this crime. In other words, we, we own this unsolved murder, but we didn't commit it. Well, if, if you didn't commit it, who did? That's a good question. That's a good question. We're going to try to find who did it now. And invariably, now it becomes a public matter. Think about a world before mass media. Think about a world before social media. Something happens in a quiet field somewhere. The Chavar Kaddish is called. They bury this person. Nobody ever hears about him again. He might not even have had ID on him. There was no ID then. We don't even know what his name is. And the murderer walks away. Scot-free. That's terrible. So how do you get the word out? The answer is the Egla Rufa. It was a big spectacle. Many people came to watch. Venerable sages, pious people, washing their hands over the blood of a young calf, indicating that just as this young calf was not allowed to live out his life, this person wasn't allowed to live out their life and, and fulfill their destiny. And we, we take responsibility. By not taking responsibility, you're taking responsibility. When you say, our hands didn't spill this blood, we're not responsible for killing this person, but we're responsible for the situation. And the hope, the aim of the Torah is that the word spreads. And it is said that when we take responsibility by washing our hands and saying, we didn't kill him, that that brings atonement for Am Yisrael. Not because we suspect the elders of having done this, but they need to stand up and take responsibility. They need to make a public declaration. We didn't kill this person. You can only say that when you own the situation. Yerushalayim can't own a situation. Yerushalayim is the whole nation. It's not a tribe, a clan, a family, children of a city. 
It's the nation. Yes, it's true there were some people who lived in Yerushalayim all year long and some people who would only be there thrice a year, but everybody's city was Yerushalayim. It was everybody's home. Every Jew felt a homecoming when he or she came to the holy city of Yerushalayim. And as such, the Egla Rufa could not be brought for the city of Yerushalayim. The Ramam concludes that this all, these four laws, he doesn't say it, but it's evident that these final four laws are Lafi because because the city of Yerushalayim was not divided up amongst the tribes, no tribalism, no particularism, no sectarianism, just Jewish. That's Yerushalayim, just Jewish. You know, that everyone spoke about the terribly wrong-headed and dangerous notion of chas v'shalom, giving portions of Yerushalayim to the enemies of the Jewish people. The Rebbe said, of all cities in the world, the one city that nobody has ownership over and could never contemplate such a terrible notion of giving away your capital city is Yerushalayim. Because even a citywide referendum would be meaningless. You'd have to get the input of every single Jew in the world because, my dear friends, Yerushalayim is not for sale. Yerushalayim belongs to every single member of Am Yisrael. That's the city that can house the Beis HaMikdash. That's the municipality that can serve as the ultimate ground zero for our spirituality. Yir Shechubra Lo Yachtav, a city that brings us all together in holiness, in celebration, in awe, and in pursuit of the highest values and purposes that have fueled the souls, spirits, and imagination of the Jewish people ever since the days of antiquity and into the coming of Mashiach, the time when Yerushalayim, Jerusalem will rise again to have its former glory restored and even eclipsed. But the third base Hamikdash Bimheira will be Amenu Amen. Thank you so much for joining. I look forward to being able to continue to share Torah ideas. If you like this, please share it with others and be sure to subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Shabbi Mendel Kaplan. Please make sure you remember to enable notifications too. Have a wonderful evening and goodbye till next time.